This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hey, Aaron, have you heard that we have a promotional code for speechtherapypd.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. One. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo! there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com.
Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP here again with tonight's guest, Jason Wigan, A-U-D-C-C-A. The topic of today falls in the functional. And if you heard us back in episode 38, The Spectacular Power of Listening, well, then you know that this will also be in the fun category too. Today, we're talking all things audiology evaluations. Huzzah! All right. Now, I'm a bit excited, a bit biased, and I'm going to overshare right out the gate as I occasionally do. I am an ear infection mama survivor. So what does that mean, you ask? Well, to the other mamas out there that are listening that have had little ones who have suffered chronic ear infections as well, then you know what I mean. So let me give you a long distance high five until we can meet in person and I can pour you something strong and cold. For those of you that don't know what that means, an ear infection mama survivor, that translates to a lot of sleepless nights, random fevers, sweats, chills, and the worst part, watching your little one whimper in pain. It sucks. Part of me kind of feels like it's a sort of rite of passage for a new parent. And then the clinical side of me gets to wondering how much more damage is actually happening here? How is their hearing really evolving? And I'm often asked by nervous parents, so do you think that they can hear? I mean, that last ear infection wasn't so bad. It was like only their fifth. Okay, so my sweet gooser had six ear infections in his first year. And his first ENT didn't put tubes in until he was 12 months of age. So his second Christmas present was the gift of bilateral station tubes. And if that doesn't say my mama is an SLP, I'm not quite sure what does. Now, Mr. Bear, his fabulous preemie helmeted head self, it went the same route, but he wasn't a talker. So we had the big worries with him and a lot more hearing tests too. Downside, during one of those hearing tests, the audiologist perforated Bear's eardrum and pulled out blood. It's a very good thing that a sweet, ever so lovely Miss Wesley was with me that day, or this mama may have gone all backwards, mama, because my baby's ear was bleeding. I say this because I'm familiar with hearing tests, and that's about it. Familiar. I was the mama whose kid had a boatload of hearing tests, and I know I studied about them during undergrad and a fair bit in grad school, but now that I'm out, well, I have truly compartmentalized that information, and that's honestly a disservice to those that I serve. Luckily, During our last conversation with Jason, I was able to convince him to come back and, as my daddy would say, he edumacated us on current best practice regarding hearing tests. So, Jason, welcome back, baby. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's it's wonderful. It's a pleasure, and I truly, truly enjoy this. I love talking to you, and I I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were one of the ones that helped Mr. Theodore out, and I was a nervous train wreck. I mean, like when you and Nikki took him back and had him back there, like on multiple occasions, I was every time like literally sweating it out in the front because I just, all the mommy nerves, right? I can't not be a speech pathologist. So thank you for being you guys. But we totally put the cart before the horse. We definitely did the treatment before the hearing test because we're exciting like that. So... Can you explain to me what are the different types of hearing evals? So let's start out with the young children. And as far as referencing the ear infections and the concerns therein and so forth, appropriate evaluation, very young infants, toddlers, so forth, has become more and more important uh, with the advent of universal newborn hearing screening programs, right? But 90, late 90s, uh, you're looking at the majority of states. 
All states typically do enforce that. The Joint Commission on Infant Health in 1990 put out its language to strongly recommend newborn infant hearing screenings, and pretty much every state is currently on board. Maybe not all 50, but a good 47 or plus actually have it in, in their state laws. And not that it's become more important per se. We've just learned and seen and had some better established outcomes in the past 20, 30 years on speech and language development and so forth. So, so it's very important to start that evaluation or to have that you know, hearing evaluated very early on. So we started newborn and boom, there we go. Okay. What does a newborn hearing screen look like? So newborn hearing screenings and you know, for the little for the infants and audiological evaluations basically fall into two buckets, two camps. You have objective assessment, okay, and you have subjective assessments. So a subjective assessment is raise your hand when you hear the beeps, responding. The individual has to respond that they repeat the word, they heard the sounds, and so forth. An objective of assessment is and with hearing evaluation, it is electrophysiological. So we're recording responses to sound from the inner ear or uh, changes in brainwave and EEG activity to auditory stimuli. So with the uh, newborn hearing screenings, the objective are the tests uh, utilized, of course, because no two-day-old child is going to raise their hand when they hear a beep. They're not going to say baseball, hot dog, cowboy, ice cream. They're not going to say the word pick, say the word room, say the word tree, you know. No, 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 no. <laughs> so basically what occurs in the hospital are the objective tests. Typically the first one, the otoacoustic emissions test, is when we put an auditory stimuli into the ear canal with a foam tip, just kind of like a normal, or I should say a subjective hearing assessment. The infant doesn't have to do anything. A click runs and then responses from the inner ear are recorded. A healthy inner ear or one with borderline, no worse than borderline to maybe a mild hearing loss is going to record responses from the inner ear as it responds and kind of think back to undergrad or graduate school days the active mechanism of the cochlea and the outer hair cells, we can actually record responses from those. So that's primarily the first one. If an infant fails that one, they may do it twice, they may do it three times, but typically they move on to the second audio objective audiological exam, and that's the auditory brainstem response or the ABR. That is where electrodes are placed on the forehead and behind each ear or on the earlobe they're completely passive, meaning they're recording. There's no input at those electrodes, right? Then in a foam tip where, again, a click is elicited, goes into the ear canals, and then you're recording the changes in brain activity, EEG, electroencephalographic activity in response to those stimulations. And using that, Depending on how loud, we'll start with a supra, a louder click at maybe 80 or 70 decibel, not a point to where we're listening any kind of damage, of course, to the hearing. But then as we reduce the click, we can watch that neural activity or that cortical activity change. And then we get to a point where there is no more change in the cortical activity. We could say, bang, that's threshold. So in a screening, it's done very quick. It runs through, you know, at say 20 decibels and we get a normal screen. Do they have to be sedated when they're newborns for that, or can they be? Typically, newborns do not. Older, or I should say toddlers, maybe, you know, infant toddler, you know, where that actually starts. But typically with about a year to 18 months old and till about 
three, two, two and a half, you know, it's kind of squirreling a gray area where they could respond in a booth to uh, stimulation. They may sedate. Now, there is natural sleep ABR. So if as long as the infant can be in a natural sleep state, relaxed, quiet, so forth. Oftentimes, if we schedule not to get, again, the cart before the horse, in the nursery, in the well baby care after birth, they are not sedated at all. So they'll get them when they're sleeping and they'll do those screenings in a natural sleep state. As the child gets older, a little more active and so forth, of course, we like to schedule those. If we're going to do a follow-up, we'll schedule around a time they would be tired, they could be fed, they could fall asleep. Okay. Do you actually do it in the nursery with all the other babies in the room or is there like a separate room for this? Typically, there is a separate room. They will wheel them okay. out. They take the uh, bassinet, if you will, into a, a, a quieter room. Not necessarily a sound booth, though I'm sure there are some hospitals that may have access to that in the area. But uh, if not, the test can be done in the room with the mother. Say they do it at night. They'll do it, you know, it's dark, it's quiet, as long as you have a quiet room because they'll use headset and the foam insert are quite attenuating as they are so they can still get good responses that way. That's so amazing to me because, I mean, so many things happen right after you give birth that like it's a fog and then you kind of forget about it all and you barely remember it when you think you're ready for your second kid or your third kid and then like you forget it all again because you're pregnant and like pregnancy brain is legitimate. But every once in a while you look back on, you're like, well, what actually happened? I mean, I got my little certificate that said your child passed their hearing screen and I put it in the newborn baby book and that was it. But I never really knew what that looked like. So that's just precious and darling. And, you know, it's a really critical. Exactly. It's a, it's, it is a really critical part of course, to, you know, speaking with you and, and our, our audience, if you will, and a lot of individuals, of course, listening to this podcast, too, it's critical to the speech and language development. Yes. And fundamentally, go on my soapbox often uh, in, in classes and with students and so <laughs> forth, but hearing is whether or not, okay, and this is by no means making a case for auditory verbal or against if, you know, say a child is born with their hearing compromised, but Auditory stimuli, the ability to detect sound is a lower life form ability. It's a lower life form trait. It's lower brainstem. It keeps us from getting eaten by the dinosaurs or the tigers. It lets us know there's a storm coming in. We can feel the rumble of ground as well as hear it as well. So it really is critical to life, you know, and, and, and again, like I said, lower life form, it is in the lower brainstem portion where the cranial nerve, the auditory nerve actually meets the brainstem. So this is a fundamental skill need that is developed by the 22nd week of gestation. It's fully, fully formed and functional. And that's why they say that uh, your infant in utero can hear music and is attending to sounds and some, you know, uh, put the headphones on the belly and all those sorts of things. It, it really is a fundamental process that is critical for us to, to assess and, and make sure that it's, uh, the integrity is good right after birth. Well, I can say from a completely non-evidence-based assessment, when I was pregnant with Goose, if Christian did the Chewbacca noise on my belly, Goose would roll to it. And I got to tell you what, that six-year-old makes a really awesome Chewbacca noise. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Also, May the 4th is our favorite day. May the 4th be with you is like the perfect interdental lisp SLP day and Star Wars day. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah. 
But uh, that's also why we have a dog named Chewbacca. Okay. So say the baby passes the hearing test, uh, like, and we'll use bear as case in point, because this is the world that I know. So we, we pass the hearing, the newborn hearing test, everything's hunky dory, but you know, Munchkin had labor stopped 14 times and he had symmetrical brachiocephaly and we had the helmet and blah, blah, blah. And the ear infection started pretty much as soon as he was born because of all the, you know, trauma beforehand. And, you know, he came out with a lopsided head, bless him. And then with the chronic ear infections, we started failing the quote unquote hearing screens in the office. And so what they did was they took my sweet little five month old, my sweet little six month old, and we kind of kept going back to the same, you know, we, we went back and forth multiple times and they shoved the foam tips in his ears. And, you know, he always had, and they would describe it to me as like a flat line because of fluid retention. So what is that hearing test? Is that the OAE, the tympanogram? Is that so, what we did? Correct. That is a, it's called acoustic emittance testing. And that is most commonly the tympanogram, tympanometry parts, although acoustic emittance testing is also acoustic reflexes. Uh, I'll mention more on that in a second. But tympanometry is assessing the middle ear, the function of the middle ear space. Okay. Now the middle ear, we're talking about the eardrum, right? Sometimes that's lumped in with the outer ear, but you know, for, for the sake of this discussion, we call it the middle ear. And the middle ear bones, right? The ossicles, the malleus, incus, and stapes, or the hammer, anvil, and stirrups, however everyone remembers them, because that is critical to transducing the acoustic sound, what we pick up through the air, right? Sound waves move through by the vibration of air particles and so forth. It does have to, once it hits the eardrum, okay, our pinna, oracle, outer ear, everything we see and have, you know, our jewelry hanging from and whatnot, that picks up the sound and it funnels it into the ear canal to the eardrum. The eardrum then beats, okay, moves, and the lever action of the ossicles is what is responsible for transducing that energy from acoustic to air, uh, sound waves, to mechanical energy as the ossicles move, and then pumping that into the inner ear, the cochlea, the fluid-filled cochlea to activate the response of the outer hair cells as they wave around in the fluid. So the middle ear is where ear infections happen, okay? So when anyone that's had a little one go in for ear infections or suspected issues, the ENT should have them go down and get a tympanometry done. That's what we do every time. Okay. Exactly. So that is where you have that rubber tip placed at the entrance, not deep in, but at the entrance of the ear canal. It makes a seal and the eardrum and those ossicles should be moving within certain norms, normed limits, right? A certain amount of pressure, what it does, it elicits a change in air pressure. At the same time, is eliciting a tone, a low frequency tone, and then it can record how much of that tone is emitted, is allowed through, if you will, dissipated through the uh, eardrum, the tympanic membrane, how much it can record being reflected back. So there are norms for that. The problem with ear infections, and I'm using my air quotes, they're not all infectious, okay? They're not all bacterial and so forth. They could be just sterile fluid, which is constantly seeping from the middle ear space because it's mucous membrane lined, like our nasal passages and pretty much every orifice in our, our body internally. 
so that you know it, it lubricates those those tissues. But once if there is abnormal function, that tympanometry is going to show either a reduced response that is not moving the way it should, right? Or of course, if it was normal, and then you can rule out that middle ear pressure or middle ear issue. So it's really critical because if that middle ear is not working, that middle ear is critical to transducing sound to optimal access to normal or to maintaining, you know, your your normal hearing acuity. Without the middle ear, we would all have about a 30 to 40 decibel hearing loss because as the sound waves move from air to the fluid-filled cochlea, there or any sound waves move from air to fluid, change the medium, right? They lose, they dissipate, they lose intensity. The energy is lost. That middle ear replaces that energy and maintains it so that we have the same sensitivity once it reaches the inner ear. Okay. I'm just wondering, how did they determine whether or not it's an infection versus just normal sterile fluid, for lack of a better phrase? Number one, if there is fluid that is collecting, that is abnormal. Okay. So they're going to address that. They're going to treat that. The middle ear space is to be open and aerated by the eustachian tube. The eustachian tube is the outlet, if you will. It runs down and from the middle ear space and terminates in the nasopharynx. Anybody that's had their ears plugged up or they go up in an airplane and their ears pop, that is because the pressure, air pressure, has changed. And there's a difference in air pressure in the outer ear canal on one side of the eardrum versus internally on the other. And that eustachian tube will pinch shut or can pinch shut. And when you pop your ears or you yawn or you open them back up again, that eustachian tube has opened. Now, with ear infections or with ear, we can call it all otitis media, right? Middle ear inflammation, middle ear issue. The eustachian tube has been pinched off and then yes, there may just be sterile fluid that has collected back there and needs to be released. How they tell a number of things. They can do a culture of the back of the throat. They can see if there is a, you know, visualize, you can look in the ear and if the eardrum is swollen, reddened. If they can see a yellowish discharge pus, things like that, uh, yeah, chances are that it's infected. Again, they could they can swab it, they can do a culture. But if they look in the ear and it's just honestly, if it's just fluid, and a lot of ENTs will tell you this too, they can't tell. That that's not them being not a good ENT or somebody doesn't know what they're doing. There may not be a lot of fluid or it may just be beginning, and that's where that tympanometry comes in. They can check, and if that eardrum's moving the way it should, great. No concerns, no issues. If it's not, hmm, there might be uh, some fluid back there. Again, in the majority of cases, when you get tubes, those tubes are being put there because you have a chronic sterile fluid, a fusion, right? It's going to be non-infectious. The infectious stuff is where, oh boy, it's locked down. They've got the antibiotics on the cotton swabs that they keep in the ear. They got the earwick in the ear. Mm -hmm. That's the more, and accompanying, like, you know, you're a mama, like you've said, fever, you know, the sweats, all those other signs and symptoms that show your body is fighting off something. Those do not exist when it's just sterile fluid. But because of the issue with the efficiency of the middle ear occurring, because you got that fluid back there, basically kids walking around with a conductive hearing loss, and especially, as I'm sure we'll get into here in a moment, in those critical years up till age two, three years old, you know, I mean, any amount of time they go with that ear infection, they are basically, they have a conductive hearing loss and are losing access to all the sounds and, and speech information they need to develop. 
Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 SpeechTherapyPD.com Conference at Sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a a three-hour course, a two-hour course, a one-hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three-hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult pod course podcast that just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD conference at sea, um, which is July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're going to see real life bears and like, hopefully we'll get to see Northern lights. So whoop, whoop, see you at sea. Bye. I'm just wrapping my brain around the amount of fluid that can be in an ear. Cause when Goose had his surgery and the ENT put bilateral tubes in. The anesthesiologist said he had never seen so much pus in a kid's ears as he had seen in mine. And I was like, I don't know if I should like clinically be in awe or as a mom be horrified. He goes, focus on the clinical. That was an amazing surgery. And I was like, oh, that's great. But like the kid's ears drained pus for two days after those tubes went in. And the SLP in me played that trump card and was just like, this is how much language delay happened here. Okay, let's go to that in one second. All right, so after they do the tympanogram and they say, hey, it's a flat line, potentially fluid is in there, blah, 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 blah. What's the next step up in the arsenal for hearing assessments? So if you do have, so once you have the tympanometry done, if you do have flat temps, Typically, if you are in a medical practice or you have a ENT or physician available, ENT or even maybe a pediatrician, that needs to be addressed first. Medical follow-up needs to take place before because you can't get an accurate assessment of their hearing acuity, sensitivity, if they have abnormal middle ear function. Okay. So if they have normal temps, then of course they are going to, and depending on the age, and this is where different methods of audiometry and how we're assessing subjectively come into play. So you could do a hearing assessment with those flat temps, with that abnormal middle ear function. However, you are going to have a degree of hearing loss. Okay. It's more critical that you have that medically assessed before you can, because as soon as they either get the tubes in or they can relieve that pressure in some way, even if they could do it in the office, then you can assess hearing sensitivity right away. So the methods of audiometry for the little ones are really threefold. There is what's called VRA, visual reinforcement audiometry, where we'll have the child sit in the booth and play either, you know, that sit- creepy monkey. That's, do you play the creepy I don't monkey? have one of those. That, that thing, 
that traumatized me. I was, I don't know what I was watching. Poltergeist, Exorcist, something when I was little. I don't like the thing. Okay, thank you. But yes, they often will have either toys that light up or, hey, it's 2019. They got screens that where they'll play a little cartoon snippet, <laughs> literally, which is nice. And That's what that so is- much better than the Creepy Monkey. It is much better. I'll go into conditioning in a second. So we have that. And basically, you want the infant. And uh, you're looking at at least eight, nine months of age plus, because they got to have some good neck support so where they can hold their neck up and turn one direction or the other, right? You're not going to, this is not going to be appropriate for anything less than six months of age. And even there, uh, six to eight, it's kind of hit or miss. You really got an audiologist got to make a call on the age of the child. So then the next, which- Wait, let me add in developmental age as well. That's correct. Because there's a, yeah. That's hundred percent right. We're not talking chronological, right? So the next would be CPA or conditioned to play audiometry. And that's primarily reserved for the two, two and a half year old to five year olds, maybe. And that's, again, your conditioning for them to respond to sound with a throwing something in the bucket or putting a puzzle piece together or something consistent and regular. They do the same motion every time so that you can get a reliable response. You know that they're saying, okay, they're attending to that sound. The last would be standard audiometry, and that's for adults, and that's the raise your hand or click the button when you hear a sound, okay? And those typically, and you can get some pretty good three and a half, four-year-olds, but generally you're looking at five plus years of age that can respond that way. So conditioning and what is important, or I guess what the thread that goes through all those is the conditioning part. In the VRA, visual reinforcement audiometry, you're conditioning that child to attend to, say, that screen when they hear a sound. So you'll play the sound and the screen together. So it's like, wow, there's a sound. And I saw a cartoon. Way, good job. Look. So now, (laughs) yep. So now when they hear that sound, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog, right? They got the sound. Oh my gosh, where's the screen? So if they will, when they hear a sound and they turn their head to look for the screen, boom, there's a response. So it gives you, you know, a pretty good idea. Condition play, same thing, except now instead of looking for a screen, they're playing a game. They're throwing a ball in a bucket or they're taking a puzzle piece or a peg and stacking it. And as long as they do the same thing every time, you can say, okay, that's a reliable response. Not just, yay, I heard it. And then the next time they throw something in the bucket. And then the next time they giggle when they hear it. Those aren't, that's not consistency. That's not reliability. Um, So they do the same thing each time. Just like, and then finally our standard audiometry, they are clicking a button. Every time you hear that beep or you hear those sounds, click that button. And uh, so we know that you, you attended to it. Exactly. We have done those as well. And that is hard. It's really, really hard to get a tired, cranky toddler to attend to all the fuzzy wuzzy animals or, but, um, it is the one that we went to did have a very cool creature that blew bubbles and that was So I got to say, as far as that goes, that was kind of cool. That's where the art of being a pediatric audiologist working primarily with kids really comes into play. You know, you have to be able to keep your finger on the pulse of that kid, what they like, and take a step back, walk out of room, chill out. Hey, it's okay. Let them get calm. Let them play. Let them get comfortable in the booth. Whatever it is, you know, because that's the art of it. You just... 127% all the things you just said, because there is a huge difference between an audiologist who treats adults and somebody who treats pediatrics and does pediatrics well. Absolutely. Because on the mom's side of it, it is so stressful 
and the stress that we carry when we walk in the door, because we go in assuming we're going to fail this one too, right? Because that's like every mom's fear. And then to be adult clinicians, and I have been an adult clinician, so I can say this, you're more abrupt. You're used to having a person that can communicate back to you and convey wants and needs. And so having to go from that mindset from adult to tiny humans that are cranky and have poops are, you know, granted that being said, I did work with plenty of adults who had the same issues as well. (laughs) That's true. There are a lot of of commonalities to approaching, you know, special populations (laughs) of any age, but, uh, you know, so. Okay. So I think we covered all of the hearing tests, correct? Well, the one thing that I want to point out, I guess, and it's something we don't, not that we don't focus on, but we don't talk about enough, is the hearing acuity, the detection of sound, the detection of frequency-specific sounds. That's one thing. That's detection. However, every child, every adult, of course, but there must be some speech recognition, some speech awareness testing going on. Critical. Have to. If they don't do it, tell them to do it, go somewhere else. And it varies, meaning it varies with age. So with an infant, you're not necessarily going to, and I'll admit, I'll say this, okay, anything under six, you're not going to reliably get any speech uh, audiometry, any attention to speech sounds, okay? But- Do you mean six months or six years? Six months. Okay. All right. Just, just double check. Okay. Yeah. Months. Cause I was like, wait, I'm confused. You know, and, and you're not going to get it reliably. You're not going to get it. It's not going to be as valid. However, beyond six, six, eight plus months, you can get speech awareness thresholds. And what that is, instead of listening to beeps and clicks, if you will, they are hearing a complex speech signal. And oftentimes it's bop, 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 bop. Hey baby, how are you? Hey baby. So you, you get a, idea of what their detection and awareness of speech is. Now, as soon as they can understand developmentally some body parts or maybe colors or things like that, then you can move on and, you know, it could be two years of age, get some recognition testing, recognition tasking, speech recognition, where you could say, show me your eyes. Where are your eyes? And this is all done at, again, the threshold level. So say 15 dB or 10 dB and show me your eyes. Where are your eyes? Point to your eyes. Oh, and they point to their eyes. Where's your hand? And they look and they show you your hand. You know, that is critical. Okay. And it's critical to get, of course, that basic fundamental awareness piece, but then it builds off that audiologically as you move through the years. The next, of course, is for for them to recite, to recognize and say the word back. Say baseball, baseball. Say hot dog, hot dog. And these are the spondees. And they're very simple bisyllabic words that, you know, say ice cream, equal stress, two syllable words. And it gives you, again, a good idea about speech awareness or speech recognition thresholds. And then as you move into older childhood, or at least after five plus years of age, say the word and you're able to get, again, this is all in quiet. So it's a good thing, but definitely if any concerns or it is very important in older childhood to begin assessing speech and noise and their understanding with some background babble and having them recite either words or sentences. So the speech audiometry piece is critical, and the initial uh, audiological evaluation is just the detection of frequency-specific sounds. 
Okay. So then here's my next question to that. I have seen folks do that, but they covered their mouth with like a paper towel or like I saw one lady use her newspaper, like when we were in the booth. Do you not want the child to see the mouth to take away the cues? No, you do not. Audiology is assessing threshold is the lowest point at which you can perform, the lowest point at which the auditory system can process and so forth, the lowest, I say the lowest point, intensity level and so forth, uh, how much or how little information it needs in intensity to process a clear signal. So yes, you're going to cover your mouth. You do not want to give the the facial cues. You want simply auditorily. That's it. Baseball. You don't want. Now, they may show initially because it's a closed-ended task, it's a closed-set task. It's supposed to be the individual supposed to know it's going to be one of these five words, baseball, hot dog, cowboy, ice cream, popcorn. And then, so it's just because you're looking at threshold. When you do super threshold, when you're looking at understanding, which is higher level auditory function, then you have an open set, whereas they don't know what's coming. They never see, you know, the facial cues and so forth. So yeah, you're talking about closed, Closed set tasking is for simple recognition threshold, and then your open set tasking is for a higher level understanding. Okay. All right. I just I just wanted clarification on that because that struck me as odd, and I didn't remember that being covered in school. Yep. So when I saw it happening, I was like, why did they cover their mouth? But gotcha. then tiny gotcha. humans and meltdowns, and I was like, oh, I'll ask later. So, okay. All right. So here's the question. When are the different types clinically indicated? Like, when do we know that we need to go from the tympanogram to the one in the booth? Or when is it indicated to actually go with an ABR? Because, I mean, some of the children that I treat, I mean, my goodness, I just evaled a kiddo on Friday that had a non-accidental trauma, a shaken baby, and we have seizure disorder. And he's just gotten the seizures under control and is starting to turn towards the source of sound. And they're like, Michelle, go do speech and language. And I'm like, but can we hear me? And if I walked in and slammed my bag down and was really loud, he could turn to me. But nobody has sent this kid to have his hearing assessed. And that's like one of like 27 on my caseload. So like, help. (laughs) So exactly. So a comprehensive assessment is going to include tympanometry. Okay. It's going to include audiological, some kind of comprehensive audiological exam. And that category, comprehensive audiological exam, is, again, like I mentioned, it's either objective testing or subjective Mm -hmm. or a combination of the two. And it depends on, it really depends on what the status of the individual is, of the child is, what sort of, if there is, if there are syndromes or there are high risk factors or concerns, you know, you don't want to be as comprehensive as possible. And that includes do the objective and the subjective, okay? So the battery itself is going to depend on really the developmental age, if you will, or status of the child and whether or not there are medical concerns beyond the auditory system. But every exam should include, number one, otoscopy. They're going to look in the ears, okay? Tympanometry, they're going to check the middle ear status, and then some kind of audiometric evaluation and that is detection of sound, whether it's objectively by the ABR OAEs or subjectively by the child raising their hand, playing a game, or visual reinforcement. 
So it's always going to be threefold. You look in the ears of otoscopy, tympanometry, and then audiological assessment. Typically, okay. your objective, as we, we talked about earlier, your objective tests are not the reserve, but your special populations. You have a kid or you know who just doesn't cooperate uh, with testing. The age, of course, you know, for the littlest ones that can't respond subjectively reliably, they will uh, do objective testing. But if you have concerns about your child's hearing, it should be a threefold process: otoscopic, check out the ears, look in the ears, tympanometry, get the middle ear status, and then audiometric evaluation of detection of frequency specific detection and like I reference speech awareness at least speech awareness possibly recognition and understanding okay so what are your red flags for when we need to do a hearing test so i mean i get that asked pretty frequently and my you know carpet answer is just get the kids hearing test because if you need me as their therapist and they probably have multiple etiologies, multiple things going on, we should have an assessment done. But I mean, for a child that just quote unquote has a language delay or just a developmental delay, when should the parent and or the speech pathologist reach out and say, Hey, we need to engage our partner, the audiologist in this plan of care. Every single child that's going to be entering speech therapy needs to have a hearing evaluation. Every single one. They should have had one, and if they you know, had one more recently, within the year, within 12 months prior to beginning um, that speech therapy. Always, 100%. Always. We are, I don't sister, brother, we're partner disciplines, however you want to put it. We are one, two pieces of the same whole. We yes. have got to, and, and, and hopefully everyone listening here and you know, understand that without auditory access, speech and language is not going to develop. It's not. It's not. Auditory, verbal, I should say. Verbal language, speech and verbal language is not going to develop. Not at all. It is, I'm just going to say it, and it's unethical and irresponsible to begin. Now, I'm saying you got to get it done. You want to get started because you can't get them in with an audiologist for a week or two. Okay, fine but it should be on that priority list, that priority checklist to get the hearing evaluated. If your speech client has not been evaluated, to get that hearing evaluated, and we're talking about children here, to get that hearing mm -hmm. evaluated. Adults too, but then again, if there's medical issues, if we're talking about stroke patients and things like that, they're going to have imaging done and so forth, but yet their OTA capsule, their auditory system is being evaluated. So before anybody starts speech therapy, that child should have a hearing evaluation done, should have a clean bill of hearing health or a, yeah. an established bill of hearing health. Because otherwise you're wasting your time. If you find Thank this you. kid's got a mild or moderate degree of hearing loss, even if it's unilateral, you could easily be derailing your therapy. You're wasting your time. There is no okay. reason to do it. None at all to begin therapy without a clean bill or without the hearing evaluated. All right. What signs and symptoms are we looking for? So that's the other question that I get is folks don't know what flags should warrant. Okay. So like for case in point, the kiddo, I had another recent new eval and there was another, I seem to be having a frequency of this. It was another um, little one that had a non-accidental trauma and it was suffocation. And almost two years of age, we're up, we're walking and we're red flagging for autism spectrum disorders. I don't think it's actually ASD. I think it's like, you know, an anoxic event, but that caused neurologic variations. But sometimes when they call the child's name, he turns 
And sometimes he doesn't. And the family tells me, oh, no, 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 he hears fine. He's just being difficult. He's just being stubborn. And I'm like, oh, I don't think that's the thing. But like, I have to proceed with caution because even though I'm in South Carolina, I'm not a real Southern belle. I'm still kind of abrupt like my Virginia Hills. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, let's just check this off the box. I'd rather rule it out than rule it in. But that's what people justified this to me, that they don't need it. You need to say, well, you say this is ah, normal. They're being stubborn. You know what? It's not only best practice, it's best for you and this child that we get their hearing checked first. Like you said, you put it, you put it well. Check that box. Get that ball. Mm-hmm. Um, as parents, you know, it's something that sounds like, oh my gosh, that's common sense. But, you know, if the child's not attending to sounds, the dog barking, you drop a bunch of pots and pans in the kitchen, kid doesn't even move, doesn't make him cry, thunder. You know, if it's an older child, you know, two, three years old, they're, you know, we got the screens, we got the iPads, we got these things in front of their face. They're turning up the volume. They can't hear something. It can make the TV louder. They like loud things. They like loud music. Those are all things you pay attention to. As they get even older, like you said, it's not always they're being stubborn. It's not always they're not paying attention to you. It's not always, oh, he's nine. You know how nine-year-olds are. No, that's not it. If you call them and they say, I didn't hear you, and they used to be able to hear you, or you, you know, again, you know, they turn up their music too loud. You're noticing maybe they go into school that they're having issues in a subject that they didn't used to have issues in. What about loud talking? Because I've heard that you use your inside voice. No, loud talking is tough because you have to have a significant degree of hearing loss to be talking loud. Not every kid, number one, a two-year-old or three-year-old, right? They got a new voice. They love this thing. They like the sound of their own voice. I mean, there could be reasons why they're talking loud. We're going to scream because we can. (laughs) You know, I mean, we can. We got siblings. They talk over each other and things like that. So that's tough. I would not sell loud talking really as this is the one thing to look for. It's a piece maybe of a whole bunch of other stuff, but it's not just, oh, they talk loud. Let's go get the hearing check. If you're thinking about, number one, I'll tell you this right now. As a parent, I, I feel this way as a professional. If you think there's something wrong with their hearing, go get it checked. Obviously, there's something that's happened that makes you even think that. Why else would you think that? If it's even a concern, doesn't matter. Go get it checked. It's it's mm-hmm. nothing. It's literally a half hour appointment. I mean, depending on their age, you know, if it's a little itty bitty different. But I mean, you can get this done quickly. You can get it done. You should be able to get it done without a, you know, month, two month wait. If you're questioning it, there's something that's happened there. Call it your parental sixth sense. I don't, I don't care, but get it done. So it really is a, just an awareness to your child for the parent. As a provider, really, number one, if you take a client in or you have a client, new client, that should be a question on the intake, on the case history. When was their hearing evaluated or has their hearing been evaluated? And they say, you know what? I don't know. Did they pass their newborn hearing screening? You know what? I don't remember because kids six or seven, you know, get it done get it done. It doesn't have to be a full evaluation. Again, every SOP is, it's within their scope of practice to screen hearing as well. 
And if you don't feel comfortable doing it, number one, you should, right? That's what the CEUs are for. You, you make sure you stay current on you know, your scope of practice and everything as the years go on. But if not, find someone who can. It can just be a screen. If they pass the screen and you're confident in the screen that it was done well and, and thoroughly, meaning it's not done in a parking lot or in the middle of a gymnasium while people are around screaming, but get a screen done. And then you don't necessarily have to have a full comprehensive eval if they pass the screen just like newborn hair screening. If they don't pass the screen, then yes, 100%, they should be evaluated as soon as possible. Okay, so once upon a time, when yours truly was a student many, many, many years ago, a lovely individual was using triangles and bells behind the student as a hearing screen. And at the moment in time, I was a student that did not have the wherewithal to say, I don't think that that counts as a screen. Shouldn't we use the thing in the nurse's office? And I was told I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, being the student that I was and my grade was on the line, I just sat there and shut up. <laughs> but like, right. is that a legitimate no, screen? No, not at all. Because I didn't think so. Not at all. Like, That's and, wrong. And and I mean, you're only in your 20s, so you couldn't have graduated that long ago. Baby. Oh my God. I'm 36, Jason, but thank you. But you know, (laughs) that we can go back to pretending I'm in my twenties. It's cool. There you go. (laughs) Yes, that's right. But also for anybody who needs it, O2 Salon on Gervais Street is wonderful. Hint, 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 hint. All right. Now continue back to the bell thing. (laughs) That is not valid. That's not reliable. That's not a thing. ENTs and prior to audiometry, audiological testing, where we had frequency-specific tones, and we understood how the inner ear responded, the active mechanism responded, and we could say we could get some, some validity and reliability in testing those. ENTs, physicians generally, use the tuning fork, and a tuning fork is a calibrated instrument. It's got a specific weight. It's made of a specific material. It's to resonate at a specific tone, okay? And you strike it with a, a rubber mallet and that tone will, you know, emanate. And it's used, that has or was used pre-audiometer, right, to assess hearing acuity. Again, or at least to screen, I shouldn't say assess, to screen for normal hearing. So that is valid. Triangles and whistles and bells and the the finger test or the whisper test, it's fooey. It's, it's crazy. It's witchcraft. There's no validity to any of it. It's puts that's how i feel about chewy tubes and z vibes fooey and witchcraft go team yay it is so anybody is doing that it's i'm sorry i'm sorry and i've as you know i've i've been faculty at the university and i teach classes there even currently that is irresponsible and unethical that is not okay. evaluating that individual's hearing acuity at all and i'm sorry as a student you were told to just hush you don't know what you're talking about because the fact that you questioned it does mean you knew exactly what you were talking about. Oh, I did. Because that weird little brain of mine, I can see something. And like it, for whatever reason, 97% of the time sticks in my head when I read it. And I'm like, all right, cool. I don't think we're allowed to do that. But like, you know, again, the 20s that I am still in decided to just say, shush, I'm not going to question this because, you know, clearly the supervisor knows more than the student. But, you know. And that's uh, Yeah. There's... <laughs> That's a whole nother episode right there. Indeed. 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 Okay. All right. I have to be respective of our time because I know that there will be questions on this. So with two minutes to spare, is there anything that we have not covered about best practice for evals that you want to cover? 
just as I mentioned before, I, I, I really want to stress the point that it's not all about detection. Okay. And the infants, you want to make sure, of course, or anyone that you have that auditory detection because without it, the complex sounds and understanding and so forth is never going to be there. But once you have detection established, no matter whether it's impaired or normal, you must, you must assess the complex processing of the auditory system. And, and how that's done is by speech tasking, speech audiometry, and speech and noise testing. And especially beginning at older childhood, and for older childhood, let's just say, you know, five, six plus years of age, okay, where they can, because again, the auditory system is not physiologically fully developed until preteen, teenage years. Admittedly, it's not. It's anatomically fully developed at 22 weeks of gestation, but it still has the connections, the neural connections and so forth are gaining efficiency well into the preteen years. However, beyond older childhood, your preteen years and up, speech and noise testing is critical. It's critical. They should be tested because again, detection and understanding are two completely different things. Detection is required for there to be understanding, but it doesn't mean there will be understanding. It doesn't guarantee understanding. You have to assess, you have to test that. So any child that is, especially your hearing impaired children, ones that have, have auditory issues, they should be tested speech and noise. That should be part of the battery of assessment. Hmm. You give me peace of mind for what my tiny humans went through and worry for some of the tiny humans on my caseload. So mm. expect an influx of referrals, friend. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I got to do a shameless plug, of course, because uh, Friday, July 19th, I will be in glorious Greenville, South Carolina. McCullough Therapeutic Solutions is hosting a six-hour pediatric dysphagia ASHA CEU course, and we're going to jump right in to central pattern generators, or uh, as I like to call them, my reason for why I do not utilize chewy tubes or vibrating sticks. And I'm also going to be covering evaluation for kiddos with unique disabilities, appropriate professions to refer to and why, as well as functional treatments for all things pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. So visit www.mtskids.com backslash continuing hyphen education for more information and to register. Jason, hold on one second and we will switch the lines, okay? All right. Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional is partnered up with feedingmatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the feedingmatters.org uh, learning center. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. That's right. On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit ipfdc.org. One more time, that's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. 
This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.